Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness. And every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Elliot Schrafer, where I ask him, how LGBTQIA plus is the animal kingdom? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. On today's episode, we are discussing two of my very favorite topics together, gay stuff and animals. On that note, welcome to the show, Elliot Schrafer, who is a New York Times bestselling author and a two-time finalist for the National Book Award in Young People's Literature. His new book, Queer Ducks and Other Animals, The Natural World of Animal Sexuality, is everything. And we're here to talk about it. So first of all, welcome, Elliot. How are you? I am great. Thank you for having me on the show. I just have to say you are the most active listener I've ever encountered. So I just feel so grateful to get to spend time having you listen so actively to queer animal behavior. (laughs) Oh my God. That's like the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. Thank you. So here's the thing. I remember when I was like, mm, maybe like six or seven, seeing Bowflex commercials and being like, I am shivered in so many words. Uh, you know, like that, like that oiled up male model, honey. I was like, who are you? Then I was like, you know, wanting to like run up to the other boys on the playground and push them down, but like braid all the other girls hair and like be their best friend. Then I feel like, you know, not very much later on, I started hearing about like gay and that that's like not a good thing that you don't want to be. And I was like, oh, my God. And then one of the first things that people say when you're young is like, well, gay stuff couldn't be real or actual because it doesn't occur in nature. Like all the animals in nature are all straight. And that's just like widely accepted thing up in this country. But actually, your scholarship works directly in the face of that and actually says, honey, no, that's not true. So let me start from the very uh, beginning in Eurochristic centric standards, you know, the beginning, Noah's Ark. There had to be some gay stuff going on on that Ark. I would say so. Uh, First of all, I'm wondering how many Bowflexes are currently in garages gathering dust right now. Like that was a moment. That was a mid 90s moment, the Bowflex. For me, it was the Fruit of the Loom ads in my brother's Rolling Stone. I skipped the articles and I just paused on all these like male models wearing terrible underwear. <laughs> it's gripping. And I had to pick so like, which gripping. one was going to be my friend. But friend was a very complicated feeling that I was having around that. Um, but I know in middle school, it was, you know, the mantra was it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? Yes. Like, and because it rhymed, it was true. Like that was sixth grade logic. Like it was definitely had to be true. And so I internalized that too. And so when I came a, came across this whole subfield within science that's just cropped up, this explosion of research in the last 20 years into same-sex sexual behavior in animals, I was really excited just as a scholar by it, but also wished I could go back in time to the Bowflex era and tell middle school Elliot, you know, that that you are natural. <laughs> like it's yes. a really, it's a, such a subversive and prevalent concept that only heterosex is natural. Um, And, you know, the Noah's Ark example is like the very beginning of it. And I wasn't there at Noah's Ark, but I do think there were definitely queer animals on that Ark. The question is whether they were in the closet or not, because they had to get on. You only have one male and one female. And all the, you know, those like little children's Bibles with Noah's Ark pictures um, where like the female elephant's wearing a bow on her head. So it's very clear that she's a girl elephant. And then she's with the boy elephant who just looks like a normal elephant. Um, And they're so like intent on the male femaleness. It's sort of like when I went to prom and I was like, look, me a boy taking this girl to prom. So I think it's got a whole queer feeling, all those pictures of Noah's Ark in all those Bible pictures that are up on people's walls. What I hear you saying is, like, when we see a lot of animations from Noah's Ark, there's, like, this very clear assumption that, like, you know, there's, like, the girl elephant and then there's, like, a boy elephant. And that runs through, like, the entire animal kingdom because all the animal kingdom got on Noah's Ark. I'm really, like, confronting my, like, anti-Bible feelings in this segment. It's lol. I'm sorry, Mom. Um, But anyway, and in the same way that we can assume... In the 50s, 60s, when everyone was like, I am man, I'm taking this woman to the red carpet or whatever, because, you know, queer people, air quote, didn't exist. You know, in like the 40s, 50s, 60s, there were queer people living then. They just weren't shown. So that if you were going to take like every single animal in the entire animal kingdom and just put a bow on the girls and like a suit on the boys, like obviously some of them are going to be queer just from like a sheer mathematics game. Like, is that what I hear you saying? Yeah. And it's even more complicated. Homo sapiens are a rare animal in that we are sexually dimorphic, um, that males and females look different, especially when we're naked. Like it's 
pretty quick unless someone is intersex, you know, that we have these two sexual categories, putting gender to one side, just like the physical body that we have. But the, most animals are not dimorphic. They are sexually monomorphic, which means that males and females look identical. Um, so, for example, like a penguin, like, do you know what a male penguin and a female penguin look like? Like, they look exactly the same. They don't have penises. They don't have vaginas. The girls aren't any littler? No. Uh, no. They are, like, the exact same size. And sometimes the girls are way bigger, not in penguins, but, like, other animals, like, especially in insects, like praying mantis, like, big girl, like, littler boy. Yeah, which is why it's so easy to eat the boys if you're a praying mantis or an arachnid. I want to come back as a female praying mantis who has a life expectancy of like 125 in my next life. <laughs> we might be jumping ahead in our conversation, but oh we, if we do talk about group sex in the animal world. I want to, I want to hear about all the orgies. I want to hear about the gangbangs, the spit roast, all of it. Like, lay it on me. Fuck it. Let's just go there now. You know, we're here. We're talking about it. Like, you know, we're just two queer people. We can't help it that like gangbangs jump to the front of the line. It happens sometimes. <laughs> what other animals engage in group sex? Because okay. I also know, because because dragonfly girls, they might not like do it at one time, but they can store like 10 different spermies because we learned from Dr. Jessica Ware. I learned from that episode about the pronged double penis. That was an mm-hmm. amazing episode. I am a huge fan of her work now. The female wolf spiders, they will eat males after the, they have sex with the males, um, just like a female praying mantis will. But the female wolf spider has actually developed a, um, an exoskeleton that has two divots in. So the males are much smaller. One can sit on and start having sex with her. A second male can come and also mate with her at the same time. So it's not just group sex. It's like her body is built for group sex. Uh, and the male wolf spiders are combating to get in the position of being the second male on because while she's busy trying to eat the first male, the second male can hightail it out of there. So the first male with the wolf spider is like, he's so horny. He's not even thinking that he's like going to get killed afterwards. Yeah. You, like if you're a wolf spider, just don't lead with your little wolf spider penis. It's dangerous. Have we ever observed a wolf spider mom to be or whatever who like is like, oh, I don't want to eat the first one. Or does she like 100% of the time always eat the first boy? Or does he ever live? I think she would eat both if she could. It's just the second one, you know, has a reflex. Is like, I see this other guy's getting eaten. I've done my thing. I'm getting out of here. Do we ever see her eat both? I've never seen her eat both. Honey, um, we got to do an episode on wolf spiders now. They're they? small. They're like snack size compared to the female wolf spiders. So who else has group sex? Because what about the... What about the snake balls? So the snake balls are one of my favorite examples, and it's actually kind of endearing. I feel like when I tell this story, people are either split. You either find a ball of mating snakes kind of sweet and cool, or you find it a thing of horror that it comes from a deep nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. Second. Um, I understand. I I honor that. Um, Yeah, I don't love snakes. That was my, actually my full my first full sentence in life was I don't like snakes, which was it was I meant snakes. Were you around a snake at the time? My brothers would like put plastic snakes with like jelly on them, like Punks. around my crib. Like just, they were like torturous fucks, my brothers. Anyway, I digress. So snakes are cold-blooded, ectothermic, which means that they can't generate their own heat. So if it gets really cold out, snakes are a bit in trouble, right? They, they can't move quickly. They can't find prey. And if it gets really cold, then they die. So... Snakes release a pheromone, which is just a chemical to signal to other snakes that they're ready to mate. And females release a pheromone, and once the male garter snakes in the area smell that, uh, they'll come and they will start to mate with her. And as many males as can will try to get in, so you have this like writhing mass of snakes. If they get to a dangerously low level, some male garter snakes will release the female mating pheromone. And so other male garter snakes will come and try to mate because they, they believe that they're mating with a female because it's a sexually monomorphic species. So these all male mating balls occur and they're all writhing, trying to mate. Of course, there aren't going to be any baby snakes made that day because it's all males, but they all warm up. Whoever released that sort of gay bat signal of, come on, guys, I'm cold. I want to have sex. It's it's sort of like, you know, like in winter, like like especially in your 20s, like people will get like a a winter boyfriend or a winter girlfriend just because it's cold out and you need someone to watch Netflix with. It's, it's, it's sort of like that. It's like, That's okay. so cute. That's the cutest thing of all time. I know. Uh, I love, wait, so now tell us about the penguins. What's up with them? So they're all the, so, cause there is gay penguins, yes. right? 
Yeah. And when penguins are like our most famous example recently, there's the recent picture book in in Tango Makes Three that was written 15 years ago about two male penguins that raised a chick. And I don't know if you saw this last year, but it sounded like it was out of TMZ, but it was a gay penguin pair at a Dutch zoo stole an egg from a lesbian couple. And it was a high like queer scandal uh, when that happened. But penguins have been screwing up biologists for years because of the sexually monomorphic quality that they have, that the males and females look the same. So the earliest zoo population of penguins was in the Edinburgh Zoo, uh, and they came in 1913. And basically, uh, explorers just kidnapped some penguins from the Antarctic, and whoever survived the journey just now was in Edinburgh living in the exhibit. And so they observed their behaviors and decided who was male and who was female based on how they acted. So... If two of them were a couple, they were like, okay, one of them is male, one of them is female. If one of them was more aggressive, they're like, oh, it's probably a male penguin. If one of them was, you know, brooding, which means just, you know, taking a rock and sitting on it as if it's an egg, they were like, oh, that's probably, that must be a female. So they assigned them all these kind of precious 1913 Scottish names, you know, like Abigail and Bertrand and Charles. And, and so then they opened the exhibit to the public. Everyone loved it. Everyone was traveling around to see these penguins. They, they even knighted one of the penguins a few years later. His name is Sir Nils Olav. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't like hold a sword, but he was a knight. Um, so and then they, they kept visiting and then they realized like the couples keep changing. So they thought it was a pair here. Then there were, that penguin was off with another penguin as a pair. And they, they were like basically spreadsheeting it because they realized based on the couples, they were running out of configurations where it was all male, female uh, couples. So about, you know, a few years later, it's probably in the late 19 teens, they had to announce that they had gotten it wrong. They'd gotten of these five penguins, they'd gotten four out of the five sexes wrong. They guessed wrong four out of the five times. Yeah. And that's just the, um, the, the gender identities of these penguins. So there's one called Dora that was stayed Dora, everyone else had to change names. So like Adam became Abigail and Bertrand became Bertha and Charles became Catherine. But then they all switched again in their couplings. And so at this point, they realized that all five of these penguins were bisexual, which, you know, it's a big deal now. It was a really big deal in the 19 teens in Edinburgh. So it really changed the way that they were looking at these penguins. Um, And penguins have been doing this for a long time. There was an explorer in 1911 who observed them in the wild and said that he observed depraved uh, behavior in the penguins. And where were those penguins? Those were in Antarctica. Oh, okay. And who was that scientist that said that? Uh, Murray Levick was his name. What a fuck. So, which leads (laughs) me perfectly to my next question. Murray Levick. So in our episode about female husbands of Jen Mannion, we learned that like, homosexuality wasn't really like pathologized or like, you know, referred to as like depraved or outside the norm or whatever until around like 1900. Before that, it was kind of like this like outlier phenomenon that was like a little bit underground. And then 1900, it's like, no, it's a thing. So by 1911, Marie Levick is saying like, okay, I'm seeing like depraved stuff in penguins. How else did scientists cover queer things in the animal kingdom? Yeah. Well, so the coda on the penguins was they finally did a uh, study in 20. 10 um, of wild born penguins in Antarctica and looked at who was courting whom. And they found that 28% of the courting rituals were between uh, same sex. So it was actually a really significant percentage. And previously people have been able to argue that, you know, maybe in the zoo, they just get confused. Like there's only five penguins around. So it's sort of like, it's like the prison sex theory, right? That like, well, there's only, there's so few around that we're, they're all going to eventually have sex. Which I don't believe in that because even if I was a prison for like 50 years and I was in an all female prison, I still wouldn't want to fuck a girl. There's all sorts of problems with that, that theory. Yeah. But this, this study, they, they took blood tests, which is the only way to really find out if a penguin is male or female. And they discovered that, you know, it was a significant, a wild born, no human interference of those penguins were, were having sex. So there's a long history of, because males and females look similar, if we go in with the Noah's Ark internalized view of how animals have sex, then, you know, every time you see like a two pigeons, one mounting the other, you just put a check mentally in the male-female column. Um, but pigeons are also monomorphic, so it very well could be two males or two females. In 1830s, there was a German scientist named August Kelch who saw uh, cockchafers mating in the wild. And it, to me, like, once you name a bug a cockchafer, like, you, it's already like, of course, the males are going to be having sex. 
What's a cockchafer? I had to ask. Cockchafer, it's also known as a doodle bug. Oh, it's just a bug. Yeah. I actually have um, his art in the book. Maybe you can describe it for the podcast. Oh, oh, it's really great, you guys. So basically, it's like when a top is when it, wait, okay, okay, wait, wait, wait. Okay, it's really hard to explain, actually. Okay, so the bottom is like on the bottom with their legs up, but then the top is facing the completely other way and their genitals are aligned, but the heads are facing opposite ways. So it's kind of giving you like, Reverse Cowgirl 69. I wish I could rewrite my book and put that in Queer Ducks. I assume they work their way up to that position because it's intense. Like, uh, it is crazy. Yeah, you got to, like, lift up your whatever. It's We got to include that. We got to, like, get that page for the for social because we got to. Yeah, it's it's really good. So 1830s, he sees the two boys getting down. Yes. And he is shocked. He doesn't understand what he's seeing. Like, is this two males? And he brings it around to all his um, entomologist colleagues, uh, the scientists study insects, and they all confirmed that it was two males. And then they started looking for a cockchafer homosexual sex in the wild. And they found more and more and more of it. And this is really the first published scientific account, again, in the 1830s. And the debate continued raging in the 1840s, 50s, 60s. Scientists outside of Germany, so now France and Russia, were getting involved writing articles about um, this same-sex sexual behavior in cocktail for beetles. And it was interesting to see all the different theories that came up around it. So the first one that, that August Kelch, the first scientist, came up with was that it must be rape, right? That this the, the inserter um, of these two beetles just had such a sexual urge that he overcame a male that was smaller and had sex with it. Um, and then the scientists began studying, like, is that the case? Is this basically cockchafer for rape? Um, and it was not. Is often the smaller one was the inserter. Um, and by the way, it's actually more dangerous for your little tiny insect penis to be the top in, um, in, in beetle sex. Because you imagine, like, you're, you're actually inserting it into these barbed plates of chitin, this, you know, the, the exoskeleton. And it's a really, it's a really dangerous thing to do. So that cockchafer bussy is like not nice. It's like just real dry and like shields and stuff. Like it's not nice for your little peen, honey. So why no, do they dangerous. do it? Do they fall in love with each other? So, yeah. So it turns out that they will do it more often if the cost of missing a mating opportunity is higher. So in other words, if, the, if you don't come across a lot of cockchafers in your day, Better have sex with anyone you meet just in case, you know, it, you could give you offspring is the sort of working um, entomologist theory around it. Oh, I, um, was, I wanted there to be more love, like more yeah. like you're just the one for me. Well, in insects, it's hard because we don't really have access to like the way that their minds work. So right. it is entirely possible. This is just the accepted, like the 19th century uh, accepted conclusion by the end. Those scientists that were like debating it, was there any other like cool queer animals of the 1800s or was it just like kind of underreported? It was underreported. Yeah. So it's it's partly, um, you know, scientists who were homophobic didn't want to see this. Right. So they would they would willfully try to, to skip past it. There was a, a sheep researcher in the 1960s named Valerius Geist, who was the expert on bighorn sheep. And when he was studying his wild sheep in the um, in the plains, he saw that they were basically living in one male society, one female society. Males and females would occasionally come together to mate. But within the male society and the female society, there were massive amounts of same-sex sexual behavior. So he discovered that basically from the age of, you know, birth until eight or nine, that sheep live in homosexual societies and have tons of sex. Um, but he resisted publishing on it. He didn't publish on those findings uh, because he said, in his words, he couldn't conceive of these magnificent beasts as queers. And this is very much like the way people talked about queerness in the 60s. Where did he write that? Or like, who did he say it to? Like, how do we know? Yeah, he wrote a memoir. Um, and so in the memoir, he recounts his thinking back then. Later, he did publish on it. And it was really important information. And now we know that bovids, sheep and cows have massive amounts of same sex sexual behavior that is very, very frequent. Good for them. Yeah. <laughs> and then like, did anyone else under report from that time? Like, do we have any other instances like like that 1960s man? Um, well, so we have, there's Linda Wolf, who was a primatologist, uh, and she wrote about Japanese macaque monkeys. And she discovered a lot of female-female sex in the macaques. And she published on it in, in the 70s. Um, and 
talks about her time after that publication, like people will come up to her and say like, why do you have this kinky interest in lesbian monkeys? Like, why would, why would you report on this even if you did see it? Um, and it's just, you know, we think that we come to science with a blank slate and an open mind um, when science really reflects the culture that is producing it. So she learned very quickly, especially as a graduate student, not to publish on that. And if you imagine the academy, biologists, when they, when they enter graduate school, they choose a species. So you become a gecko expert. You go to field sites and study geckos. You publish on them. Your mentor is also a gecko expert, probably. And then you get your first teaching job and your tenure track position by publishing on geckos. They say the existing amount of research is 600 pages of articles on geckos. And none of it mentions same-sex sexual behavior in geckos. You, as a 22-year-old scholar, could publish on this thing that you saw. You saw you know, male and male geckos having sex, female-female sex. But if you publish on it, you're contradicting your professor. That article has to go to the peer review from other scholars who also didn't publish on this. So you get this momentum of erasure for queer behavior in animals, um, which has been really hard to countervail. And it's, I think it's really telling. There's two really big uh, nonfiction books um, on same-sex sexual behavior in animals that came out in the last 20 years. And in both of those cases, the editors, in order to find the articles to fill out their book, just approached existing field sites and said, you've been studying bottlenose dolphins for years. Do you have data on same-sex sexual behavior in these animals that you haven't published? And the answer was overwhelmingly yes, that we haven't put it out there because we're worried about reputation. It's just not the kind of research that people are publishing. Uh, and so they found out that it was, it all existed and that's how they, they brought it all together. Wow. Like this fear, this like malignant fear of truth and like, and moralizing truth, you know, it's like, just like my therapist always said, tell the truth and tell it faster. And it's like, how much like carnage do we make from like sitting and trying to like make the truth fit the narrative that we want it to fit. And I just think that's, you know, an interesting thing. So in Queer Ducks, uh, you make the distinction of, of equating animals with humans and treating animals with, quote, equal consideration. Why do you think people get hung up on being equated to animals in the first place? Yeah, there's a, a double answer to that. Going back to that Noah's Ark example, in Genesis, uh, humans were created on a totally separate day, right? We're the creatures with souls. We have this essentially different nature, and then all other animals are in their own category. Even after Darwin published on his theory of natural selection in the, in the 19th century, that should have shown, like he said, humans are different from other animals, not by kind, but by degree, meaning that we are within a continuum within the animal world. And that should have been the death knell for this human exceptionalism, right? This idea that humans are the extraordinary things and magical God-given, God's image things and animals are all separate. Um, but it didn't, I mean, thing, when things are that embedded in culture, they don't go away very quickly. And the way it works in the natural sciences is, you know, there's this anthropomorphism accusation that gets thrown at scientists all the time. That if you assign an emotion to an animal, that you are doing bad science, that you are saying that it has feelings when animals don't have feelings, or we can't know, therefore we can't write about it, we can't consider it. And there's a Nobel Prize winning ornithologist, Conrad Lorenz, who wrote about gray lag geese, who are pretty awesome because they have polyamory, which we could talk about that later. But he wrote about them and said, you know, it shocks him that he can see a goose who's lost its partner its wings are drooping, its musculature has gone limp, it has no energy to forage, it just hangs about the nest. But he is forbidden within his publishing to say it's in grief, because grief, grief is for humans. Animals can have, you know, a repressed system as a reaction to a death, but you, only humans get access to grief. And we have all sorts of feelings that we consider are sacred to humans. So and it allows us to do whatever we want to animals, right? So if, if we are the ones who really can suffer and can really feel, you know, Descartes, the famous, I think, therefore I am philosopher, used to vivisect dogs. Like he would do a lot, he would have a live dog and, and he would cut it open in front of other scholars to look at its beating heart. And, would, and they would say, the dog isn't feeling pain. Only humans can feel pain. This is, the dog is pretending to feel pain in order to get us to, to help it. It is just an automatic response. Um, and so 
we don't vivisect dogs anymore, but we do have 10 billion animals a year in these industrial farms that are living and dying in these spaces that we know nothing about. And in fact, there are laws, ag gag laws, preventing us from even having seen video of what goes on in there. So this mass horror that underpins our society, which is enabled by this feeling that they're animals. So I mean, sure, maybe they have some like vague sensations of feelings, but they don't really. Um, is all about this human exceptionalism that we inherited from our, you know, Jewish and Christian worldviews. So in one piece, I absolutely think, you know, we have a moral duty to consider animals with far more mercy than we currently do. We are internalizing this subliminal idea that we are the only ones who suffer, therefore all is permitted around animals, which is doing huge damage and huge amounts of suffering around the world to non-human animals. On the other hand, I made clear in Queer Ducks to make clear my identities, like as a white cisgender guy, the animal comparison isn't alarming to me. I find it a source of joy and comfort. But I do know, you know, people who don't have my identities, who are more marginalized, like get compared to animals in pejorative ways. And as as kids got compared to animals um, and, you know, sort of in a, as a harsh playground taunt. So it's I can see it as a source of joy. But I know for a lot of people, they're working through a ton of other reactions to think like, you know, if I say like, oh, trans people are just like deer, to me, that feels like a really positive, wonderful thing. But I know that's going to fall differently on different eyes. Well, it's interesting, though, because that's like, because to you as a scientist and in your scholarship, it's like you're seeing that like humans are part of that continuum of like animal experience. Like we're all animals, whereas the people who taunt marginalized people in those comparisons to animals, they're still subscribing to the thing of like human idealism. And if you don't participate in a cishet human idealism, well, then I'm going to relegate you to like this, you know, animal status. Like you're not human, you're subhuman for being marginalized. And what you're saying is, is that like, actually, no, we're all animals and that's all gorgeous and that's all love. And it's like this continuum. But then you have like the Ted Cruz's of the world that are just determined to have like chin straps. And then you have like the Kellyanne Conway's of the world who are determined to have what they fucking have, like bad hair color and even darker hearts. Ah, I get it. It's hard. Um, okay, so I'm obsessed with that. I get it. So we've already gotten into some examples, but can we remind people in case, you know, maybe this is your first episode that you're jumping in on. Like, I don't know your life. Like, maybe this is the first getting curious you've ever listened to of our 250 episodes. You know, it's fine. Can you just tell everyone in case they have not been listening for years? What's the difference between sex versus gender? Briefly. So sex has a biological definition. It is, you know, something that is externally identified based on your body. Um, and gender is the way that you socially present your position. So sometimes they agree, in which case you're cisgender. People identify me as a male looking at my body. I also identify publicly as a male, but they don't always agree um, in, in case of non-binary or, or trans people. Uh, for, for animals, yeah, the big question is like, do animals have a gender? And uh, it's it's still an active question. Like, is it, do they only have a sex or do they also have a gender? And then what about sexual behavior versus sexual orientation? Yeah, so sexual behavior is actually much more applicable to animals. Um, so sexual behavior is just, you know, homosexual behavior is having sex with another male or female, which is the only way we characterized homosexuality in humans until the late 19th century, right? You could have gay sex, but you couldn't be gay. There was no identity attached to it. So that's actually a pretty modern invention. Um, and orientation is kind of what in our culture seems like the way of talking about sexuality, but it's actually kind of just a, a blip historically, this idea that you have a lasting and permanent identity based on who you're attracted to. But I do feel like it's like popular still. Like I see this in a lot of like, you know, mask musk gays, well, men that are like, I might suck dick and I might let a guy suck my dick, but that doesn't make me gay. Like, I feel like that's like a really popular thing. Whereas I'm like, I don't know, girl, I feel like maybe you're a little bit curious. Maybe you're like a little bit, you know, like, I feel like you're something. So let's get to it. Bisexuality, fierce, poly, fierce. Like, we love all the different things. What are, like, bonobo handshakes? What's the deal with that? What's, what's <laughs> happening with these bonobos? So I love bonobos. I spent a couple of weeks at a sanctuary for bonobos in the Democratic Republic of Congo just hanging out with them. 
And they have the red butts, right? Oh, that's a mandrill. Oh, get it together, Jonathan. So what are bonobos again? They're really pretty. They are Mandrills are beautiful, but bonobos look just like chimpanzees. They're like a little bit more svelte and twinky than chimpanzees. <sighs> um, but they have, they are our closest relatives. They're tied with chimps. They share 98.7% of their DNA with us as humans. So this is incredibly close overlap. And unlike the chimpanzees, they have a very peaceful culture. They are matriarchal, so the females are in charge. And the females keep their positions of power through very, very frequent female-female sex. So they have evolved these really enormous clitorises. Um, they're like the size of grapefruit at their biggest. And then they, they lay on top of each other and they rub those clitorises together to orgasm. For them. It's, I saw it happening. And what, what was great is at the sanctuary, I was doing a walk around the edge and I came across a group of nuns who were just in a quiet circle watching these two female bonobos have sex in the sanctuary. It was like a beautiful, beautiful moment. Just furiously rubbing clits in front of the nuns. I'm obsessed and with that. And they are loud. Like it is, like you imagine that large of a clitoris and you're touching another one. Like it's, a, it's clearly electric. I don't know what bonobos are thinking, but they're feeling good things in that moment. So what's, is that what the handshake is then? So a bonobo handshake is the way that, so chimpanzees have this violent culture. They will murder each other. They will really hurt each other. Bonobos have this peaceful culture. Why? Why do the chimpanzees get just for power? Well, the current theory is really interesting. Um, it's that in way back in their history, chimpanzees had less food that they had access to. Uh, and so chimpanzee females with their young had to go forage alone in order to get enough food to eat. So the males learned over millions of years they could be aggressive towards any one female uh, and she wouldn't have support. But the bonobos actually had more food around. And so the females could forage together. And these groups of females would always have each other's back. It's sort of like the pink ladies from Greece or something. And so if one of the males went after one of them, he'd have five females coming to the defense of that one or whoever else was around. Do we see any chimpanzees like evolving to like, have they like seen the bonobos and they're like, oh, ladies, if we start to have these fuckers can't fuck with us. Like, can they learn that too? Well, so and it's so the the bonobos through their frequent female female sex. Like when you have sex with someone, if you've ever done that, I'm actually a virgin, so I don't know. I don't <laughs> okay. never done that. You're coming out today. Um, it releases a hormone called uh, oxytocin. Um, I love oxytocin. And so it bonds you to whoever you're next to. Yeah. That's why like why like 13 year olds, when they make out for the first time, they're like, we're going to live together or hang out in the food court all the time. And like, we are best, you know, lovers for life. And it's this feeling of immense closeness to whoever you just had all this physical contact with. So the females use all this frequent female, female sex to develop this really intense alliance between females, which ultimately keeps everyone safe because you have a group of moms in charge and they don't want their young to get hurt. So they keep the males from acting up. And it, it ripples down to the entire society. And so the, being a male bonobo is awesome, too, because you have a more peaceful world. And the males will have sex, not as frequently. They call it um, penis fencing. Um, not in the scientific literature, but scientists informally will call it penis fencing. You know, it's like sort of whapping them together. Um, but chimpanzees, we were, because we assumed they were aggressive and violent, we were actually blind to same-sex sexual behavior in chimps. But it actually is frequent. And there was a recent article, I talked to the scientist in, in Queer Ducks for this. Um, there's a recent article on uh, fellatio among male chimpanzees, um, which does occur with, with frequency and it occurs often after a conflict. So two males will get in a fight and then in order to repair that bond, they will engage in fellatio. Um, and two ways or one way? Like, do they both say sorry or is it like the winner's like, suck my dick up, like to the loser? <laughs> That, the way you phrase it the second time feels very chimpanzee. So I'm going to, I don't know the answer, but I'm going to vote the second way. But just because I'm like worried about the chimps, like do bonobos and chimps live in the same like habitats? Very similar. Yeah. Like why can't the chimpanzees see what they're doing and be like, hey, you guys, we can just. I, given how chimpanzees treat other stranger chimpanzees that they meet, but they, they go to war and start killing the other ones. Like. The bonobos have this like really small territory right in the middle of Congo and they're relatively um, safe within their small groups. Like for the bonobos sake, I'm kind of hoping we don't have any chimpanzee mm. bonobo. Oh, because the chimpanzees would just like kill the fuck out of the bonobos. I don't know. These like sort of soft, sweet, hippie apes, like uh, they should, they should keep to themselves for a while, you know? Oh my God. So basically the chimpanzees just like, it's in their heads and they're just like a little angry. So these animals are tied as our closest relatives and they're very close to us genetically. And one is this violent culture that's male dominated. And one is this amazingly peaceful culture that is structured, structured around 
lesbian sex or on female-female sex between these bonobos. It's not just incidental. It is the source of their goodness and their, their health as a society. And what an amazing metaphor when we look at ways forward for us, you know, that we have these different ways of being. I would love to live in a female-dominated world. It would be so much better than the male-dominated one we're currently in. If we had access to that sort of way of living as humans, it would be wonderful. And secondarily, our closest relatives engage in very, very frequent same-sex sex. Homosexual sex in bonobos is the most frequent kind. Um, and so any of those claims about the essential unnaturalness of human sex, that this is an aberration caused by our culture, that the kids will read the wrong book and become gay. And so let's keep those books out of their hand. And then it just won't happen. Our closest relatives, 98.7% of the DNA, prove that it is inherent and in, innate in our genetic composition to have this access to a diversity of sexual behavior. There's a recent article in Nature that tabulated like how many animals have really good research showing same-sex sexual behavior. It's 1,500. So it's across, and this is across, this is invertebrates, vertebrates, bonobos, all the way down to marine snails. So it's, it's, it's a huge amount of animals. So it's not just these like occasional outliers. Matriarchal society or patriarchal, it doesn't matter, honey. It's like everybody's Everybody wants to bump uglies with each other sometimes. What about gay dolphins? Okay, so bonobos are like the female love structuring their society. Uh, male dolphins are the opposite. So you have these male sexual alliances that are the structuring element of dolphin societies, bottlenose dolphins. So the only lasting contact between dolphins is between a mother and a calf, which lasts for a few years. Then once the calf is an adult, it, they'll part ways. Um, the only long-term union is between males. So a male and a female will come together and mate for a few weeks. Then the female will go her way to raise her calf, and the male will go his way. But these males form what was long known for decades as a male friendship. And it wasn't until recently, until about 2006, that we actually found scientists willing to publish on the dynamics of this male friendship. And it is cemented through sex. Like no one you've ever known has more sex than your average male bottlenose dolphin. So these two males find each other, they bond for life, and they have sex on average 2.4 times an hour. So just like you're swimming through, you're catching some fish, you pause for a moment to have a really quickie with your, your male bonded partner as a dolphin, and then you go on and find a female. The Both of you invite her in. They both mate with the female for a few weeks. She goes her way to raise her calf, and then the males continue um, on their, their journey through the oceans together. And they don't get jelly or anything? Like, they're just like a little throuple for those few weeks? Yeah, well, they're both mating with the female. Like, they're they're enjoying it, you know, and they're not... You know, an animal doesn't have to self-identify. It doesn't have to be like, I thought I was a gay dolphin and now I'm, I guess I'm a bi dolphin. Like, it's just the, the female is here. We're having a good time. Like are the two and a half times fucking an hour, are they verse or is there like a bottom and a top? So it's actually, that's a very complicated question in dolphins. You imagine this is a creature shaped like a torpedo that has access to like all three dimensions in space, right? So we are, we're stuck on the ground. A dolphin can go up and down and left and right with no problem. They can easily like sort of switch positions all the time. So normally um, scientists will record who's dominant, who's subservient, you know, by who's mounting whom. But with a dolphin, like they, they move so quickly, like it's really hard to see who's mounting whom. And they have prehensile penises, which means the dolphin penis, like your tongue, can move around with muscles so it can squirm and grip. Um, which is partly because they have these torpedo-like bodies. It would be really hard to have sex like moving through the water with something that is like sleek and, and narrow like that. And so they have these prehensile penises that can basically like grapple uh, with each other. So they are, they're just having sex. It's very hard to say one is a top and one is a bottom because those prehensile penises are doing a lot. Because they don't stick their dicks in the other one's butthole? Like their dicks just rub? They will, they will rub dicks. They will, one will put its um, beak into the genital slit of the other dolphin. So like, um, like. Bellatio? Is that like oral? Yeah. And then they push him and often out of the water. So they will like, like, you know, like when you're in the pool and you like push someone and it's kind of fun and splashy, like they'll push, but it's like a genital pushing um, that they'll do together. They'll rub um, with their fins. They'll rub each other's genitals. 
Um, they'll put their their prehensile penis in the blowhole of another dolphin. So I was wondering about the blowholes. <laughs> Were you? Yes. You're already on the blowhole. So they will shove their dicks in the other one's blowhole. But what about their dolphin buttholes? Do they ever just do like D in the butthole? Like, do they ever do like anal dolphin? I'm really sad I don't have an answer for you on that one. I'm going to need you to ask your dolphin interviewer friends about, like, I just, I am a little curious about, like, anal, dolphin anal. Mm-hmm. Just now I am, too. Now so I, part two, we'll have to have yeah. you back. What's, what about an, is it, what about an albatross, honey? Do they get super gay? So albatross is a really interesting example. The, the short answer is yes. The lace and albatross, a third of their breeding pairs are female-female. Um, and these females, so an albatross is a really giant, beautiful bird. Um, they only become sexually reproductive years into their life. And at that point they find a mate and they return, they split for the most of the year and they come together to raise, um, hatchlings together. And the, some of them just will choose a female. The females will go through the same courtship dance that a male female pair would. It's really amazing. They do kind of clack their beaks one of them like puts its beak under their wing and do a sort of a dab move. And it's really, really cute to see. You should look at um, YouTube videos of this. So they, they'll do this courtship, they'll bond, and the females will raise uh, an egg together. Uh, and because it's two females, often they have what's called a supernormal clutch, meaning they have twice as many eggs uh, that a male-female pair would have. So it's actually been argued that potentially this surge in female-female parenting within shorebirds, and it also occurs in roseate terns and in gulls, that these female-female nesting pairs actually produce more offspring for the next generation, you know? So it's harder to get two baby birds to survive than one because you have to find twice as much food. But if they manage it, these female-female couples of birds actually have a, um, an advantage in the next generation. More of their genetic code is going into the next gen- generation of birds. And mm-hmm. by natural selection you could argue that that would therefore cause more and more birds to turn to this. Like you, you basically be birthing more lesbian in quotes birds. Not that I think lesbian is really a word you can use for birds. So what about like explanations for these traits and behaviors? Like to have like, cause that's saying that like, actually for them, it's like enhances their chances of survival. But I could also think of like the people, you know, like the Westboro Baptist church people who come to pride and say like, God hates fags and all. Um, I could like the, those animals are going to die because of how they're going to have babies that they keep fucking each other. So like, but in that case, they're actually doing better. Yeah. So sometimes it's an advantage. Um, there's quite a few cases. So you think about the bonobos, they develop these really intense social alliances through the producing oxytocin through this same sex sexual behavior. So it's giving them an advantage within the group and the bottlenose dolphins, the males are cementing their, their important alliance and getting access to the best females through their frequent sex. Like they are tight, so to speak. Um, there's other animals where you know, like the Japanese macaques, Japanese macaques also have a lot of female, female sex. And scientists came up with a lot of theories for why this might be happening. And they Try, they tested all of them in, um, in the, uh, the scientist named Paul Vasey tested them with a population of macaque monkeys. So some of the theories were that it was a way to get more parental care. So it was that basically moms joining up and creating a union through having sex in order to raise offspring together. My favorite was the theory that maybe females have sex with each other to turn on males in the area. So it would get other monkey, male monkeys to sort of like watch this and be like, okay, now we're going to have sex. This is why the females were doing it. The patriarchy never dies. It's basically like the late night Cinemax version of Japanese macaque monkey sex. But that's giving me like the patriarchy. Like it's like, oh, like it must be in service of men. Maybe they just want to eat each other's fucking macaque pussy. Okay, scientists. Maybe they just fucking like it. Those are not the words he used, but that's basically the conclusion of this many year research study that tested out all these theories is that none of these transactional theories for why actually held. Instead, what they concluded was, and it was actually kind of like shockingly controversial, is that they're lesbians. They just want to do it better. They just want to do it. So (laughs) and you think about it, we evolved sexual genitalia in for the purpose of sexual reproduction. Like that's, I think that's a fair enough assumption, but once an animal has it and an animal has a mind and can make decisions on its own, it's, I think, very, very reasonable to conclude that animals can make their own choices with this genitalia that they might've evolved for male, female procreation. And so these Japanese macaque monkeys are hanging about. You're eating nuts for a while. You're eating some fruit. You have the afternoon off. You could 
in, in, experience incredible pleasure together as two females, they just do it. It's not to get, you know, an extra parent. It's not to turn on males. It's just because they find female, female sex pleasurable. So what do scientists think is the split of like nature versus nurture here? I will tell you mine before you even answer, because I think that maybe I'm a scientist. Because you know how like as a non-binary, gender non-conforming person, I feel like I'm really over binaries. And I feel like nature versus nurture is like yet another binary where we're being forced to pick like it's either the way you were born or it's either the way you were brought up. It could not like it couldn't possibly be both. And I feel like maybe sometimes it's both because like as many people as there is in the world and as many animals as there is in the world, like we're all born in a certain environment with like certain things that are going to like either take care of us or not take care of us or whatever, you know, so there's like the way you were born plus there's your environment and like don't both have to have some sort of implication i mean that's it's basically exactly what the conclusion is uh i did a chapter in queer ducks on fruit flies because fruit flies are the only animal in which we've actually been able to go in and change the dna and try to change what sexual behaviors fruit flies were interested in and in the 90s which was already such a really tense time around queer identities. Basically it's happening again, like, but that was the last period where we had RuPaul had a talk show and everyone, all these straight guys were confused because they were so attracted to RuPaul and Dan Quayle was saying homosexuality was a wrong choice. At the same time, the scientists went in and played billiards with fruit fly DNA and made gay fruit flies, or that's the way that they, they described it. Um, and it is basically what they had done. Fruit flies have sex through genital licking, um, so they will like get their face up into the backside of an ex-fruit fly and, and lick their genitals as a way to initiate sex. And they had um, a, petri- uh, an, a sample of all male fruit flies. They were basically all doing genital licking together. So it was like this long conga line, like at a wedding of um, these fruit flies, all male fruit flies, all having this long line of sex. And so they said, we've actually discovered the gay gene. We made gay fruit flies. Uh, and this was on the cover of Time and Newsweek. It was a big deal in the mid-90s. But very quickly, that all fell apart. Um, what they had actually done is they had just removed the ability for these fruit flies to distinguish males and females. So they had just put males in that group. And so all the males were having sex with each other because they, they no longer saw male and female as different categories. Those fruit flies would have easily made it with a female if they had access to one. And to me, that was then, there was also a time when people were trying to find, really intensely trying to find a gay gene in humans. And to me, it's a really disquieting idea because we only tend to want to find reasons for things that we find strange or anomalous. You know, there's not urgency behind finding where's the gene for red hair, but there is this sense of urgency of like, we can pin it down. And for some queer people, it is this feeling of like, see, it's a gene. It's not a choice. Leave me alone. Like this is not, you can't claim that I'm, I'm doing anything wrong. I understand that urge among queer people, but it's also something that can be used on the other side, you know? So if there is a gay gene and you spit into a vial and send it to 23andMe because you want to find out if you have Neanderthal DNA in you or whatever, they're also creating a database of everyone's genetic profiles. And so if they found a gay gene, and you could imagine some future presidential administration that was getting political points by persecuting gay people, um, queer people, then they could just, they would have a, a database with scientifically proven information saying that these are the people who are, are LGBTQ, no matter what they say or how they're living, we know it from their genes. Um, and those are the ones that we can put in jail or whatever they wanted to do. Or potentially like do like fucking like try to like, try to like do away with the gay gene and like try to like, you know, make us in like make us straight fruit flies or something. But where's the straight gene, honey? Like you guys probably got some fucked up gene over there too. That's making y'all want to like eat puss and suck D's and stuff, you know, whatever. Um, the point is, is that like scary. It's it basically what I hear you, like the risk of attributing too much to genes is that it could like further pathologize queer people and um, make that gene like something to be corrected or like scared of or like seen to be like plucked out of a crowd. Yeah. And so, and they do studies of, of identical twins. So if two twins get separated at birth or adopted in a different family, say, and one comes out gay and one comes out straight, that's an argument that it's culture, right? That culture makes your sexuality because they have the same genes. Um, whereas if they both turned out gay, then that's an argument that it's genetic. Now, like looking at long-term at many of these studies, 
sexuality is sort of genetic, just sort of like 50 or 60 percent genetic. And the rest is from the culture of how you grow up. And I think that is that is like the ideal that queer people should be hoping for, because there is a, a big genetic component. But it's not just all genes, which, ought, which would enter in this old draconian possibility of, of exactly like instead of conversion therapy, going into the hospital for a week and someone's changed your DNA. Right. Um, which science isn't there yet, but it could be. So I think it's the best best we should hope for. 50, 60 percent genetic is is perfect. Mm. So in Queer Ducks, you say we might have been wrong about the story of the peacock. It's not males outdoing one another to dazzle females. It's females training males to cater to female desires. Can you explain the shift in this emphasis? Yeah. So there's this whole growth in feminist biology, which I just love, um, which is a way of revisiting the story we tell ourselves around how sex works. Like we have this version, like you remember from health class, this like the brave sperm go through this hostile and uh, territory of the female's um, reproductive tract and the most successful heroic one will make it there and he will break through the ovum and he will impregnate her. And meanwhile, we find out now there's actually a huge amount of female agency and all that. There's microvilli on the outside of the ovum that are it pick a sperm and invite it in. And the sperm basically knocks uh, and then he's capacitated by a hormone that female releases and allows that sperm in. He doesn't break in anywhere. It's like the ovum has an agency in it. And the same thing happens when you're looking at animal behavior. So the, there's natural selection, which is the animals that are do better in each generation survive to pass on more offspring. There's also sexual selection, which is that, you know, through the choice of different um, organisms, you could, you could change behavior over time. So if, for like peacocks, so if a peahen really loves the way a male looks, um, she'll choose that peacock to mate with. But the way we figured that story is all about the male's journey, right? So that these males are out competing each other. They're doing these, um, they're creating these absurd looking feathers with like bright blue eyeballs on them and all to get, to win over the female. It's like his, his courtship ritual. Um, and when you watch a documentary, like they'll often like put on sort of, you know, mood music for it and show like, oh, the male bowerbird is creating the perfect arena. And the, they always say just at the very end, the female submits to the male, right? So he's, she submits to the, to the winning male, the male that outcompeted the other males. So it's this male journey. It's like every 80s action movie, right? Where there's some beautiful woman that's running along that doesn't have any lines, but she's just wearing high heels. And the peacock look at this journey through the other lens, like look through the female eyes here. It doesn't help those peacocks to have ridiculous feathers. In fact, it makes them more at risk for being predated or being killed. Like it's, it's not a beneficial thing for a peacock to be doing, but this female peacock has decided she likes just this shade of blue in her males. She wants this perfect cerulean glittery blue and only the male that has the most beautiful blue on his feathers, will she choose to mate with? And so the males are trying to change their feathers. This is like zooming out. It's not individual males doing it, but like over years, the male peacocks are evolving these brighter and brighter blues. So the female will be like, ooh, that one is the one I like. I just like the way he looks. It's not because blue makes for better young peacocks. It's just that she's chosen something and is now testing the male's for their ability to alter to female desires. So she is the author of his change. What she is choosing, what she wants to see, is really what is altering these male peacocks and putting them into these kind of more and more ridiculous forms. She's the most obvious protagonist for this story. And yet in sexual selection, whenever it's talked about, it's always about the male ostentation, the male competition, uh, and not the fact that they are just doing whatever it takes to, to be the one that she chooses. I feel like we see that a lot, like on Discovery, like in Lions too. It's like that big lion is like trying, and then like the lady's like, I don't really want to fuck. And then like, and then it's like the British accent. It's like, and finally she submits. It's a short, coital experience. And before long, it's over. The man going on his way and the woman left to raise a child. The way we think about men and women in our society and the, the unchecked assumptions that we have get mapped on to the animal world. And we've long thought about history that way, but it's only recently are we really sort of thinking about the ways that that impacts the science that we do. This supposedly unbiased, just ex experiment-based research that is actually still forwarding these human assumptions. 
By the way, lions have lots of homosexual sex. I love homosexual sex. I also love Dr. Zhui Guo from our early China episode because she told me this one thing that I've always thought about a lot in every episode of Getting Curious that I've done since hers. But she said, you know, you have to be careful when you're reading history or just be cognizant because history has typically only been written by the winners. Like the people who like won the thing or who had like access to like leaving the historical information there. And especially in science, the winners were like straight white guys for the longest time. And so it is really important that we think about the ways that we like map out these like patriarchal, like human ideas onto animals. So how can we reorient ourselves from that narrative or at least start to reorient ourselves from that narrative? Well, I think one thing that was really clear to me in the book, I, I have Q&As with five different researchers in, in Queer Ducks, and I picked people from very different backgrounds. So non-binary people, people of color. Um, and it was one thing that came through was, you know, science is made by the people who perform it. And so we have to expand out who gets to do science and we have to expand it through having more diverse student bases. Like these people of color I was talking to that in their PhD programs, they were usually the only one. Um, and now they were on faculty and they're the only one. Um, and it's, that changes how we view animals and the stories that we bring or how we interpret the animal stories that we're witnessing. Absolutely. We've heard that from other scholars that, you know, they are the only one. I also think that especially in the cases of like queer people, which it's like, obviously we're a really intersectional bunch because you can be like male, female, non-binary, you can be any race, you can be anybody within our community. But I also think that like as a queer person, like, or, you know, LGBTQIA+, often like we're pigeonholed from very early ages, like in media to like, be, like to be what you want to be. Like when I was little, it was like, okay, I can be a hairdresser or I can be like, you know, a stylist or I can be an interior designer. But like, if I ever really wanted to be interested in science or really wanted to be interested in something ap academic, like it was made pretty clear to me that like, you're kind of a flighty, girly, like you're not meant to be there. And I think that's part of what I'm so passionate about with getting curious and just my work in my adulthood is like making sure that more people can see themselves in more spaces that can move the world like science and academia. And not that I think that what I do isn't important because I love hairdressing. I love the science of hairdressing. I love the art of it because it's actually so much more than this like superficial thing that people assign it to be because I think that it's like, I mean, there's nothing that beauty doesn't touch race, um, economics, history, because like everyone who we work with is so different and has like such a different like experience in the world. So I think even in those fields that are seen to be, you know, more queer acceptable fields like design or hair or fashion, even those fields themselves are also like there's a trans misogyny because they're like constantly underplayed and like undervalued and like how hard they are. But I also want queer people to be able to see themselves. If you do want to be a scientist, or you want to study rivers, honey, I don't give a fuck. Whatever you want to do, do that. So um, wait, so one of the things in the book that I was like, you know, because I become more and more aware, like every day that I'm like definitely 35, which is definitely like not 24, um, you know, just like this thing that's happening. So I, I definitely feel like this, you know, in Queer Ducks, it's definitely geared towards younger readers. One of the things that, that it laid that bare for me is when you said that Glee was an old TV show. And I was like, ah, deep soul me. pain. <laughs> we are going there. Um, so what inspired you to tailor Queer Ducks to a more YA audience? Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I've written for young adults for a while. Um, and so I kind of have come to see the field of YA, which is incredibly diverse as far as the books that are written, is something that most of our readers are adults. You know, it's just a different form of telling a story. It's not necessarily about having a teen readership. Um, and I wanted this book to be accessible to a broad audience. Um, just like one of the things I love about your podcast is that you're, you're making sure that there's access points for people of all walks who are coming to it. Um, and I remember, so when I was that, you know, middle school self who was hearing it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, and I realized I was gay from seeing these Fruit of the Loom ads in my brother's Rolling Stone, I was a nerd, which will be no surprise, and I went to the encyclopedia. I went to the, the it was called the Book of Knowledge. It was like this multi-volume encyclopedia in the media center, and I looked up homosexuality, and it just said it was this aberration unique to humans caused from too much attachment to mother or maybe too much attachment to father. No one really knew. Um, and that it didn't occur in the natural world. Not, and that was it. And so the message I got was that there was something that went wrong with you. It's, I knew it was true. It was unavoidable. It was so absolutely clear to me. Um, but it was also something that was, that was wrong. And so I, Went, got to the other side of that and I came to love my unnaturalness in a way. Like I loved 
being queer. I love not being normative. Um, and I would never trade it now. But there's a lot of, you know, I was in a sort of a purple area with pretty accepting parents. And there's a lot of teenagers who don't survive that journey to get to the other side of it and learn to love what makes them queer or unusual, right? And for those kids in particular, that messaging that you are unnatural, that there is something essentially wrong with you that takes you outside of the way the natural world is meant to be, is something that they don't overcome. You know, there was a, the Trevor Project just had some stats last year where they surveyed LGBTQ youth and found that 43% had considered suicide. And I think a lot of that is from these messages of unnaturalness. And so what I wanted to do in Queer Ducks was to make it clear to those young readers that one thing is absolutely true, that there is an abundance of scientifically validated and revalidated information confirming that different gender identities, different sexual expressions, the whole diversity of what we have and then some is all really present in the natural world. And it's just the story you're being told that eliminates it. It's just this history of science that we have to get over. But you belong in the natural world and that is a source of comfort. And one of the things I... I loved talking to these researchers in the Q&As. One of them is trans. Um, he was assigned female at birth um, and then transitioned and he had top surgery. And that whole transition point um, when he was in his 20s was really difficult, you know, sort of negotiating family, negotiating colleagues, wondering whether to come out in these very rural spaces because he was studying sheep in, in you know, Idaho. And it was when he was off in the field with his binoculars, looking at these sheep, there for a week, sleeping in a tent, did not have to worry about how are people going to interpret me. I am just a creature among creatures. I am in the natural world. This all-important and stressful idea of categorization and figuring out your categorization fell away, and it was just being part of the natural world. And that is something that is essential to all of us and, and really, really important for young queer people to hear. So that is why I wanted to gear it towards a younger audience. Yeah, I wrote down and like, like wrote, like drew a circle around it like 10 times. I wrote belong. And I feel like, and over the top, my first book, I talk about like this huge fear of like not being normal, like growing up, like I really wanted to be normal. But what I meant by saying being normal is that I wanted to belong. Like I didn't want there to be something about me that like, you know, made me stick out or like didn't like let people still like want to interact with me. So it's really like ultimately no matter what, like we want to belong. And it's so interesting that you had to come to that journey of like, you know, owning your thing that made you different and owning your thing that made you like otherly, but then come to find out in your scholarship, you couldn't be any more fucking normal or natural if you tried because like these same sex or poly or all of these different shades of sexualities and existences, they already do exist in the natural world. And it goes back to like who was telling those truths in the first place. So it's like we always have belonged. We always have been normal. We always have been, you know, acceptable at the truth. But it's like the truth and the truth that we get presented is not always the same thing. And I just think that it's like, really, it's this essence of belonging that unites humans. Like, we just want to belong. Like, ultimately, we just want to belong. Um, and so I think that that's so important. And I think it's so beautiful that you did this work in Queer Ducks. And in the US right now, books are being banned left, right, and center. You also note that books with queer themes are often targeted. What was it like to write Queer Ducks in this moment? Yeah. And, well, and it was after I wrote it uh, is when this recent surge happened that basically cynical right-wing politicians realized they could score major points and fire up communities by claiming that there was sexually inappropriate or they call it pornographic material in, in schools and in public libraries. And really what they're saying is LGBTQ content. Um, and there's a separate move towards uh, claiming CRT and that books about race shouldn't belong as well. And that's happening in parallel, um, which is obviously given what I know about the importance of representation for young people, really, really troubling. Um, but beneath it, all these, this idea that you can wall out queerness that is essential to this argument, right? That if in our town, we don't have books that even mention it. So therefore, a young person can't read a book and think, oh, you know, I decided I'm a, I'm a, I'm a boy now, even though you thought I was a girl. It's the good old Chechnya theory. There's no fucking gay people here. What are you talking about? Right, right, exactly. 
Uh, and so this, the thought is, if we seal ourselves off, we keep that messaging out, our children will grow up straight and it'll be like it always was. Um, and the one thing that's very clear from all the natural sciences is that same-sex sexual behavior, that changing sex, which a lot of animals do, or having a different gender expression, which also happens in, in various animals, um, that that is not something that comes from the outside. It is something that is inherent in the fact of being an animal. We have this diversity deep within our history from millions of years of evolution, and it's proven by the fact that it's shared by all these vastly different branches of animals. And so there is no walling it out because it comes from inside. Like the call is coming from inside the house. The queer right. call is coming from inside the house. And this is our last question, I swear. In your Q&A with um, academic Sydney Woodruff, you say, I've been wondering lately if queer people are especially drawn to nature. I know that it's definitely happened to me in the last like two years. Like I never thought I was that into nature, but turns out like I'm fully obsessed. Um, and also what's your relationship with nature? Yeah, I... You know, Sydney Woodruff was a great example because um, Sydney's black. And when Sydney was young, didn't feel like hiking was something that black people did. So like when Sydney got to college, they said, you know, oh, I, I just I don't know. I've been in wilds a lot, but I don't hike. Uh, but then they realized like, oh, yeah, I'm a hiker. I just thought that was what white people could do. Um, like we have all these versions that we get as children of like, I can't camp. Like <laughs> That's not something I have access to. Um, it's not the way I work. But the thing about nature is that you don't you don't have a, a certain version of yourself that animals know. Like animals just know what you're doing in the moment and what your what your actions are, and that is what they interpret. Like it seems quite clear that animals don't have they don't slot us into categories when they when they see us. Uh, and it's something that I I love about that being in the wild is that you get this sense of a pleasant kind of oblivion, like sort of like, like, like you're meditating, like no, no one's trying to pick out what you are or who you are or what you're like. Um, instead you're just, just existing. Um, and I think, I think of that, you know, trans uh, researcher that I was talking to that felt such peace the moment that they were just sitting on a rock looking at their sheep, um, that it was just a moment of, of relief from this relentless, categorization that we find ourselves in within human societies. And isn't it, isn't it a relief that, you know, animals are like us and yet don't, don't map each other out and diminish each other's statuses based on what they've decided to identify you as. Mm. 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 Wow. 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 What an episode. Elliot Schrafer, thank you so much for your time. We're obsessed with you. Your book, Queer Ducks is available. Thank you so much. We love you so much. Thank you so much for your time and your scholarship and your work. We're so appreciative of you. And God, did you do so good? I'm getting curious. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Thank you. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was Elliot Schrafer. You'll find links to his work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend and please show them how to subscribe. Oh, 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 yeah, oh, 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 yeah. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our socials are run and curated by, you guessed it, Middle Seat Digital. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Snaps for Andrew. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim. 